Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a great one ahead, and it's a pleasure to welcome my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. Elliot, let's start with you this week. Thanks, John. Hello, everyone. So I wanted to pick up on a topic that came up last week, which was you know recently put on my list of something that was worth talking about here. And that's the idea of longevity in the investment business. And I was uh, pretty obsessed with this coming out of the book, Richer, Wiser, Happier. Um, It really kind of stoked my mind on this. It's something I've always thought about, but it struck me uh, in in a interesting way, in a strong way. When I read the example of Jason Karp of Turbillon toward the end of the book, and he's a phenomenal guy. Um, his podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy was like really interesting and enlightening on many levels, and he's doing some cool things post-investment. But what really stood out to me is of all the people in the book, many of the gentlemen featured, and you know, by and large, it, it was men, but many of the people featured were um, much, uh, they were older and they'd been in the industry and the business for a very long time, doing their own thing for a very long time. And their turnover, by and large, was pretty low. They all tended to be really long-term investors who had concentrated portfolios, and they created this headspace for themselves to think deeply and to uh, act accordingly. Meanwhile, CARP was the only one who I'd call in the faster money school of uh, investing. Um, And he was very much a dedicated long short where he runs a high gross, low net. Um, And the idea is to I think the way I was formulating in my head is be right about everything. Be right about a lot of things. Like you really have this pressure to be right. And sure enough, of all the people in the book, I think he was the youngest featured in the book. And sorry, not featured, but mentioned that was covered in in some sort of way. He was the youngest person. I I looked up all of their bios trying to find like the age they were born. And not only was he the youngest person, but he's the only one in the book who seemed to have a burnout in the business where they had to hang up their cleats and just move on to something else. And, you know, that really struck me. All these other people are older, had spent a lot of time, you know, uh, Nick Sleep hung up his cleats kind of early, but it was in a totally different way. It was with a sense of accomplishment, having delivered on this, you know, very grandiose uh, uh, kind of quality in investing. Carp was like, worn out and burnt. And, you know, it really made me think about this idea that when you're doing concentrated investing, when you're doing long-term investing, you make a lot fewer decisions um, and you have, you know, just way fewer things that you have to be right about. This pressure to be right tends to be something that I think could get one to the point of burnout. So I was trying to think of a couple things that would be helpful in maintaining intrigue, staying fascinated with the business, preventing yourself from burning out and building toward longevity as an investment manager. And so a few things that come to mind 
And I'd love to hear uh, your guys' thoughts, both in general on the idea of, you know, making fewer decisions leading to lower likelihood of burnout and what things you think of uh, to last a long time in this business. First and foremost, I I do think fundamentally there are two kinds of people who come into investing. And obviously, when you do these kinds of things, it's a gross oversimplification. But I've broken down the industry into um, the mercenaries and the philosophers. And the mercenaries are people who are attracted by the, you know, kind of headline financial numbers you can make uh, as, as a successful participant in this industry, right? Obviously, we all know you can make a lot of money if you do well in, in the business. The philosophers are the people, uh, on the other hand, who, you know, obviously, if you're successful as a philosopher, you could also get the financial fruits. But first and foremost, these are the kind of people who are attracted to the intellectual puzzle and the infinite nature of the game, who would do this even if the uh, compensation weren't there. So I think, you know, part one is if, I, I fundamentally believe the philosopher people are way less likely to experience this kind of burnout than are the mercenaries. Um, the second thing I was thinking a lot about is spending time on knowledge with enduring rather than ephemeral value. Uh, the more time you spend on things that have a shelf life, uh, the more likely you are to kind of waste brain power and cells on stuff that's just not going to matter. And we all have a finite number of uh, things we could absorb and, and you know, really kind of uh, synthesize into our own world. So if you spend a lot of time on things with a short shelf life, that inherently, I think, leads itself to crowding out other stuff and could lead to burnout in its own right. Um, I think part of uh, the podcast a couple of weeks ago on getting to know uh, faster, where you turn over a lot of rocks and you have this filter and you know what you like and what you don't like, and you spend your time on those things that are within your worldview, within your purview, um, I think that's really helpful. You know, that's kind of like the more I think about it, Buffett's circle of competence. I think part, part of that is narrowing down to an area where you are both intrigued, you're engaged. Um, and that means a lot. I think one of the other ones is, uh, and I've referenced this on a few podcasts as well, we're all pretty young in the grand scheme of things. I think Michael Mobson said it's uh, 45 to 55 is peak investment per per performance, if I remember success equations the right way. Um, and you know that's later than in most fields, especially athletic, but also intellectual. And I think part of that is like building these repetition, uh, these, these experiential uh, examples that you could reason by analogy and understand things while still being young enough to be in touch with what's new, what's relevant and not be, you know, that cranky old man who's like, ah, you know, I still like my newspaper in my hands every day because that puts you at an inherent disadvantage in the market. And then lastly, one of the other ones, I think, you know, when you're in this world of acting less, doing less, um, you're less likely to get decision fatigue. And I think decision fatigue is something very real. The more decisions you have to make, the harder it is. And bad decisions beget bad decisions. And it becomes this vicious cycle that's hard to escape once you make one mistake. And so when you make fewer decisions, you inherently make uh, fewer mistakes just by definition, right? The, the, the number is less. The opportunity to make mistakes is less. And it's the same reason why Steve Jobs wore that same black turtleneck every day. It's one less decision to make. Um, so I think those things all matter. So those are a couple that come to mind. And I wanted to hear from you guys what you think about this topic. So I'll turn it to you. Yeah, it's very real. Uh, it's it, I've had this thought where, 
you know, particularly when I was one of them, I, I, if I look back 10 years ago, let's say I was definitely more opinionated or I felt the need to sound smart or show how much I knew or spout off on a whole bunch of different things, right? I was, I'm sure that if you were to ask somebody who worked with me 10 years ago, they would confirm that. And I don't think I was ever at that extreme end of it. I mean, I, I distinctly remember a guy and I, I saw him recently and I, I've known him since 2008, I want to say, when we both joined the business and he was at a definite extreme. I mean, he had, you, you could make, you could throw a dart at the newspaper and pick a topic and say, what do you think of this? And he'd come with like a hot take on every single one. Didn't matter what you picked. And now that he's seen a little bit more of life, I think, and had a little bit more experience, he's definitely toned that way down. And you know, I think part of that's just the normal maturity cycle. But to your point, I mean, I think anything that's probabilistic as investing undoubtedly is, whether it's explicit or in your subconscious, you, you realize how much randomness affects things and how unpredictable and unforecastable a lot of the world is. So I think that weighs on all of us. And I think it's a good thing. I think that helps you make better decisions. And I, I'd have to, I'll have to go look up that uh, statistic that you cited. I mean, I will say that um, there's a professor at Kellogg I've gotten to know who's done some really interesting research about the age of successful entrepreneurs. And everybody likes to think about Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg dropping out of college and starting a world-beating business at you know, 20 years old or whatever. But by far, the most successful businesses, uh, however you want to measure them, right? I mean, number of employees, revenue achieved, years of longevity, public market valuation, private valuation, doesn't matter. However you want to measure entrepreneurial success, uh, by far, the most successful businesses are actually started by people in their 40s and 50s not people in their 20s or not even people in their 30s. So that's interesting. And I think defies a little bit of conventional wisdom. So I think you're probably right about the 45 to 55 thing, but you also have to survive to get there. And I think you're 100% correct. You just can't. Look, I, I will say and the mercenaries versus philosophers thing is really interesting. And I certainly don't, I don't align personally with the mercenaries end of it. I don't think there's anything necessarily all that wrong with it either. I mean, I, I think what it's sort of like investors versus speculators, there's not one side that's necessarily superior to the other and there's no moral judgment in either one, but you have to know which side you're on for sure. And if you don't, you're going to end up really disappointed. So I think it gets back to the, just, you know, the, the key tenant in investment is to just know yourself and know what you're trying to do and, and not fool yourself. So for from my end, I mean, I, I know one thing I've done for sure over the last, call it five to 10 years, is I I haven't gotten away from it entirely, but I used to be the type that just wanted to know absolutely every last detail about everything. And I would chart it, I not chart like the price, like a, a chart reader. I mean, like I would document it and notate it and go back over it a million times. And my files and my desk are a total mess of information just coming out of every end. And it's it's exhausting to do that, right? And I think I've learned to better gauge the diminishing returns to that process and really focus in on the two or three things that really matter. I mean, to your point, I think the biggest difference, and it's a it's a it's a small sample size, so it's not all that reliable, but the examples you pointed out in William Green's book. I would say every one of those people in that book learned to focus on what matters as they got older and tune out the noise of what doesn't matter. 
uh, with the possible exception of, you know, the one who burned out, maybe, I mean, you know, th- there's lots of things that go into burnout, right? I mean, there's so many things that can go on in your personal life or, you know, with your health or your mental, you know, your frame of mind. So I, I, I think it's impossible to ascribe one, you know, cause and effect here. But I do think that the older I get, the longer I go in this business, the more I appreciate people that have find have found a way to last and adapt and survive. And I think adaption is crucial. And, and if you don't have the ability to get off the treadmill and stop running after things that don't really matter and just focus in on the things that do matter, you will burn out sooner or later. It may take 20 or 30 years. And look, I think there are people that make dozens or thousands of trading decisions on a weekly basis that can survive for a long time. I mean, there's some of the legendary traders that we all know would fit in that bucket. So I don't think it boils down to that simple of a decision framework, but you, you have to do what fits your style, your temperament, your personality. And you do have to avoid decision fatigue, right? I mean, I think I'll give you another example is on the business side, right? I mean, how many great business people, forget about just investors, but how many great business people blow themselves up because they basically have decision fatigue on some other part of the business, right? They don't like the accounting. They don't like the HR function. They don't like whatever. They're just too tired to make more decisions in those realms. And so they either delegate poorly or not at all. And it comes back to really bite them. So decision fatigue is a very real thing. And if you want to pursue longevity, you've got to find a way around it. And, and you know, from my end, like I, I definitely pay less attention to quarterly earnings results and quarterly conference calls and that sort of thing than I used to, if that's what the thesis calls for. Right. I mean, I, I, my biggest position right now is a business where there's almost no threat of a competitive disruption or some sort of business issue in the next five or 10 years, but that's the thing that would really matter. So that's what I spend all my time looking and thinking about. I don't care whether the price of some commodity inputs gone up or down this month or this quarter. I don't care what sort of like total nonsense and noise is going on right now. And this is where you can go back and say, all right, let me go read the, third quarter 2017 transcript of this company's earnings call and see how much of it ended up mattering. And the answer is like literally nothing or almost nothing, right? So how do I skim all the nothing and get to what matters very quickly? And if you can do that, you just free up so much time and mental capacity to do what matters. I think that's certainly one key to longevity. What about you, John? I think having an inner scorecard as much as possible uh, helps uh, a great deal. Um, you know, in investing and in life, I think uh, it keeps us sane. Uh, easier said than done in investing, especially if you have outside money. And so I think if you do manage money for others, it really matters who your partners are and whether they kind of, you know, are a drain on your energy uh, or if they actually might even add to your energy. So I think you know, who your investors are and how you interact with them uh, can have a big impact on how you feel about what you do day to day. So again, that's another reason why it's so important to choose the right partners and not just grow AUM uh, at any cost. I think avoiding decision fatigue, um, you're right, Phil, it, there's all kinds of personalities and, and some folks will um, enjoy making tons of decisions. But I think for most of us, having 
fairly low turnover will help in that department. And I think we, in the past, we might have talked about kind of taking a collecting approach to investing or, or a gardening approach where, you know, you can kind of watch your portfolio um, improve over time and, and not always feel like you have to be on this treadmill of kicking something out, putting something else in. Uh, so I, I, I do think for most people that would be helpful uh, for the longevity. And I, I also think, um, you know, what's your relationship with money? Um, I, I feel like it's helpful if you don't view money as a status symbol, but simply as a score in an enjoyable game where basically you can detach yourself from um, the money it, as such. Uh, I think that helps a lot. And then finally, for me, you know, having things away from investing that I care about, uh, that can be family, it can be nature or animals, um, reading, fiction, and things not related to investing, uh, sports. It can be any of, of, of a whole host of things. But I, I think just having things that put the investing in context where it's not your whole life and you don't feel overwhelmed. So those are just a few things uh, for me. Yeah, you guys had a lot of great stuff there. And, you know, by all means, I very well might be making up a narrative out of uh, one example in a book that was specifically featuring a certain type of person had maybe a more passing mention of another. But I do think there's something to be said about, um, I, I do think there's something there. And, you know, Phil, I found it funny when you were talking about like when you're younger, being very opinionated and having opinion on everything. And I was exactly that person. And one of the things I've started to realize as I've gotten a little older is like, it was so bad. It's, you know, one of one of the beauties is I can reflect back on myself and be like, oh, wow, I was so dumb. Um, That was just not the way I was supposed to be. Uh, and I kind of believed in that like techie utopian strong opinions weekly held thing where part of what I was doing was testing things out and seeing if they actually had enduring value. But um, the better part about having fewer opinions on fewer things is when I do have an opinion, I really freaking believe it. Um, and I, I've found that to be more interesting and helpful um, in investing. Um, and I forgot which of you mentioned uh, the ability to adapt, but oh my God, is that huge. And I'd add to adaptation, this idea of situational awareness, like knowing yourself, knowing how you act in certain situations, knowing the environment and how the environment's adapted and how there are different uh, regimes and being able to recognize the passing of the torch from one to the next. Like markets have certain fundamental principles, but there are different kind of regimes that are operating at any given time. And I think part of the beauty of Buffett is he was able to adapt successfully from when cigar butt investing was rewarded to when quality investing was rewarded. And that's not necessarily easy. It takes an open mind. It takes um, probably some inner turmoil along the way too, uh, which adds into the idea, uh, John, you invoked inner scorecard. I think that's spot on, right? Um, that that's definitely part of, uh, being a philosopher in this, having that inner scorecard, um, and, you know, understanding yourself and understanding what's important to you and what you, uh, want to be judged on. One of the biggest challenges in this all is that there's no immediacy between when we make a decision 
and when we know if we're right or wrong. We've talked a lot about this notion that price is trying to act on us as opposed to being something that you know is just there. Um, the markets are going to move, but we still don't know if we're right or wrong if they move against us when we've just made a decision. And I think that's one of the greatest challenges. And I think that's part of what's so hard in the having to be right about everything because you know, you, you you just don't know enough in enough time of whether you're right for the right reasons or wrong for the right reasons or whatever. It's really hard to, after the fact, assess some of those decisions. And I think that's, you know, something that's extremely important. And I think that's the, uh, you know, I was talking with some friends recently about how do you do deliberate practice in the investing business? And it's like, I, I think it's harder than just about any other field. Um, and I was thinking like Fermi problems might be one of the best ways to do it just because it, how it trains your mind to ask questions and break down a problem. But otherwise, you know, like the case study approach is a popular one. I just don't know because it's still about decisions and judging the quality of decisions and the framework that went into it. Yeah, it's good. That's a great point. I think it's a really fascinating, uh, Fermi problems are great. I, I would recommend that, but I would also just recommend there's, there's no perfect way to do it, but something that's really worked for me is I just go back and I'll pull, you know, the Costco annual report from 1994, just pick a year, right? And say, what would I have made of this business at the time? You know, because it's obvious in hindsight that that was a life-changing investment had you made it at that juncture. And and, and be honest with yourself. And what, How would I have evaluated this? And what would that mean for the next time something like this comes up? And so to your point, like when, you know, when I was probably way over opinion, over opinionated in my twenties, I missed all sorts of things. Right. I mean, I'll, I still remember the Google IPO. And so I think the problem with having too many opinions, even if they're loosely held, so to speak, is you're ascribing to yourself, like a kind of hyper rationality that just doesn't exist in most people. So if you have an opinion, no matter how loosely held you're telling yourself it is, if you're out there giving that opinion to people, it's going to be pounded in to your own head. And so once I've told even one or two people, oh, this Google IPO is so stupid. It's another dot-com bust waiting to happen. It's only been whatever it was at that point, four years since the dot-com bust. Like, I can't believe they're floating this junk on the markets again. Then for the next, you know, 10 years, I was negatively biased towards Google when I obviously should not have been. And it was really stupid. And so I think that's what happens, right? I mean, I anybody that went to college or like debated sports at a sports bar with some buddies, like doesn't matter what the reason is. Like if you come out and say 10 years ago, I don't really like that LeBron James, he's just kind of a jerk. And you say that to a few people, you're going to hold that opinion. Like most people are just going to stick with that opinion forever, even if there's tons and tons of evidence to the contrary. And it's really stupid. So why not just not do that? Like, like you said, Elliot, just save your opinions for the very few times when you have good reason behind them and they're actually necessary, right? I mean, 98, 99, something approaching 100% of my opinions, the world doesn't need to hear, which is one of the things that drives me completely and totally insane about Twitter is you've got all these people on FinTwit just telling me absolutely every thought that crosses their brain and some chunk of them inevitably stir up a discussion, a debate or a fight and it just turns into this massive reinforcement exercise. And it's like, how is this possibly productive? The world doesn't need my opinion on almost everything. 
uh, almost anything, right? And so why would I be out there just constantly spewing my opinions into the ether and letting people fire back at me? And that's not testing opinions. That's just creating your own echo chamber. And in my opinion, it's enormously stupid. And it's a, certainly a path toward decision fatigue and burning out, which like you said, I was my point on the book was just that I think uh, Jason Karp was a little bit of a, everyone's one of a kind, but, you know, he, he stood out from the others. And so it was, you know, you can't draw too many conclusions from a sample size of 10 or 15 or whatever, but it's a very real phenomenon. I totally agree with you there. Yeah. You had a couple of good things there, but I don't think you're going to make that Google mistake a second time. That's the beauty of being young and all this, right? Make those mistakes while you're young. I know it's oh, a big, I, big one. But. I make, yeah. I mean, you're right in a narrow sense, but I make similar mistakes to mistakes that are too similar, I guess. Right. And so yeah, I've got to really train myself into it to say, these are the things that were obvious at the time that I missed. And I think one of the reasons I missed them was because I was just casually dismissive of it as we're, you know, shooting the breeze with a couple of my colleagues. Right. So I just don't do that. Right. Like I'm just not going to share opinions with anybody until I have a good reason to. And I think that makes total sense. And, and so again, if you can go back and say, all right, let me go read the S1 or the first annual report or whatever from Google and see what I should have seen back then with the benefit of hindsight. And that'll help you in the pattern recognition going forward. Yeah. And you know, your Costco example, I think uh, I'm going to push back on the Twitter thing by way of the Costco example, you really have to know yourself and what your goals are like to be able to say, I'll go back and look at 1994 and, you know, get out of my own head knowing what they've done since and get into the framework of making a decision then uh, from, you know, kind of like blank slate, tabula rasa principles. That's, that's hard. You have to know yourself to do that really well, but it's the same thing when you engage on Twitter, right? You can put out opinions. No, you, you could either know for sure that you're putting them out because you think you believe them, or you could know you're putting them out because you just want to see what responses you get and how that could help refine them along the way. Um, and I did that just the other day. I won't say exactly which uh, piece I put that out there on, but I, I think it's kind of helpful to uh, refine your own thinking and and get interesting flow on ideas. So uh, well, that's that's fair enough. But I guess what I would say is I do it on a very case by case as new basis. So I'm a huge believer in getting feedback, but I want to do it when I know the feedback I'm getting is worth something, right? Like if I go out on Twitter and start just giving everybody my opinion about what's wrong with the airline business today or where interest rates are going or what a company might be worth or whatever. And then a bunch of people I don't even know start coming back at me with their opinions. I just, to me, like maybe it's just my personality that just engenders like the need to prove a point, which is not the exercise here. And so if I really had a desire for feedback. If I said, Hey, I'm, I've made this investment or I'm thinking about making this investment, give me the other side of it and tell me what I'm missing. I can go to two or three people I know who know me. I can evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of their argument without just this, you know, back and forth element that in an asynchronous channel, like email or Twitter or whatever, I just don't think is all that productive. But again, maybe that's just my personality. You need your inner and your outer crew, the people you you know, at least in a loose sense, and the people that you don't know and have a filter for like which information is valuable, which isn't. And then sometimes from that, you know, outer circle of people, you do get things that are really valuable that you're like, this is obviously valuable and interesting. That's how kind of how I think of it. 
Well, there's also this idea of believability that uh, Ray Ray Dalio talks about, right? So, um, you know, having a sense for how believable or credible someone is when they're giving a take on, on, on something. And, you know, to do that well on, on Twitter, I think you really need to know who is responding to you and um, you need to have some kind of a, a, a view of, of that person. So, yeah, and I, and I also feel like it depends on what kind of feedback you're soliciting. If it's pure opinions, yeah, it's going to be a mess. But if it's something where people can actually provide some facts or, or something of of kind of that's that that can be objectively verified i feel like that that can be helpful um while we're on the topic uh of of longevity just uh one thing that's really helped me and that i would say is also don't be so harsh on yourself i think all of us have a tendency to to really be harsh on ourselves when we make a mistake uh and I've learned over time that I just have to accept myself with all the emotions and flaws um, that come with who I am. And that's fine. So I think just kind of being fine with yourself is going to uh, make that burnout uh, a lot harder uh, to happen um, than if you're always beating up on yourself. That can be really draining. And one last comment for me, just on this notion of adapting to the environment. Um, you know, for me, it's not totally clear cut. Um, I feel like it has to come organically, uh, where you just learn more over time and, and kind of change your view of the world or your approach and you're adapting that way. I feel like if it's, if it's due to the pressure of the moment, like some, way of investing is really in vogue and hot or some sector or, or something. And then you got to feel like you have to adapt to that. I feel like that could be actually could, could lead to burnout. Um, so yeah, that's just uh, another little uh, thought there, but uh, let's move on to our second topic of, of the week. Phil, what do you have for us? Sure. So this is a little bit of a different direction. Uh, it's, probably, I hope it's as thought-provoking is what we just talked about, but it's definitely not something with a definitive answer, unfortunately. So (laughs) bear with me. But I I was just taking kind of a survey the other day. Um, I know you guys probably have invested less in credit than I have over the years. Uh, And that's to say almost none in the last seven or eight years, just given the market environment we're in. But it is something I like to look at. I think it's a good framework, certainly a good analytical framework. It can be an amazing investment opportunity. And uh, I think it's really important as you look around. I mean, we've talked a lot about interest rates as financial gravity. And so we're all aware of what's been going on in that regard lately. But I, I just sort of had this idea of, you know, people spend a lot of time debating equities and the equity market. And they spend a lot of time arguing about the Fed and saying the Fed's wrong or doing it, screwing everything up, whatever. What would it actually take over the next, call it, couple of years to maybe a decade for the credit markets to be a success? And this has been a debate for a long time, right? I mean, this is not a new phenomenon where every time you think that something that can't go on has to stop, 
but we've had a 40-year bull market in bonds. And every time you think this is it, this bull market in bonds has to be generationally going the other way. It just hasn't happened. And that includes you know, the, the booming expansion of the 90s and the dot-com bust, the global financial crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, 9-11. And I mean, you have all these earth-shattering events, and none of them have really mattered in the big trajectory of what's happened in credit markets. And so what does it look like? What, what would your benchmarks be for the next, you know, two, five, 10 years in terms of how you're going to make money? And you, you, you make it, you break it down. And this is credit is, isn't is a negative analysis, right? It's a negative art, right? You, you're trying to avoid bad things rather than you're always trying to hit home runs, right? I mean, you're trying, generally speaking, to avoid defaults or avoid taking too much duration risk when interest rates are about to go up and that sort of thing. So it's, it's a little bit upside down or inverted from a lot of other investment styles, which is, I think, again, a good thing, but it also has huge implications for other asset classes. So as I was taking kind of a, a I do this every so often, every couple of months generally, and, and looking around at some interesting data points. And you know, you start with the sovereign yields that are out there. And I was looking at the 10-year government yields, obviously about 1617 on the 10-year here in the US, a little over three in Mexico, about four and a half in Brazil. And that's about it. You go over to John there, he's at negative 0.1 in Switzerland. They're same in Germany. Uh, a little over one in, in the UK, but basically zero in France, about one in Italy. Italy and Greece are both at 1%, right? I mean, I guess Japan's at a little less than that. South Korea's, at, I mean, these are some just astonishing numbers. Then you go to the other end of the spectrum. The high yield index right now is only at 296 basis points over treasuries. And it's ranged from actually a little bit less than that to about 420 in the last year or so. But you're only you're getting less than three percent excess return to own junk-rated corporates over United States Treasuries. There, there's just not much out there, and so I do wonder. I guess this is the question I'll pose to you guys: is it's been a bizarre period, right? Where you've actually had very low corporate defaults in the last year or so. You've had actually very few sovereign defaults, very few state and local defaults. Like it's been very very quiet. Is that because things are really all that good? Or is it because this is the calm before the storm? I mean, even Evergrande over in China seems to have avoided at least for one more day, a default, a formal full-fledged default. I, I was stunned when I, when I read this the other day that there were actually only a few dozen, like 20 or 30 individual hotel loans that were restructured in the US in the last 18 months. And those were all resolved very quickly due to so much liquidity out there in the market. I mean, look no further than some of the bankruptcies that we've had, like Hertz, where we've talked about this, the reflexivity of it all actually kind of created its own equity recovery, which is just astounding. But then you see on the other side of it, I, th this was really interesting. In Europe this year, out of all the investment grade deals that were priced between the start of the year and the end of September, 80% of them have declined in price. The yield's gone up. So there were 1,147 new issues in investment grade Europe this year, and 956 of them are trading below their issue price. And that could be noise. It could be a canary in the coal mine. I really don't know. Um, there, there's just there's so much duration out there 
that if that is a canary in the coal mine, I think a lot of people are going to get absolutely killed. And a lot of valuations are going to be immediately underwater, never to see that that number ever again. And so the implications for me, and this is where I want to hear from you guys, if, if you think there are any implications, are that you should just not be taking any substantial duration risk, particularly in bonds. Like I actually was explaining this to somebody the other day in very simple terms. If I were a really fancy, clever hedge fund manager, which I'm not, I'd be looking for as much equity duration in terms of real cash flows as I could possibly get and as little bond market duration as I could possibly get or or maybe long equity duration, short bond duration as I could possibly get. Because it, it, like so many good hedge fund type trades, you just can't lose very much compared to what you can make on that trade. Now, obviously, I'm not doing that. That's not how I invest. But you get the point, right? That there is just there's so many ways to lose money right now in bonds that it seems crazy. So if if you are exposed in any way to that, and we all are in one way or another, if it's a company, you know, a, a CFO should be fired on the spot right now if he or she is not out taking advantage of this market to lock in just the cheapest possible financing and, and see how this goes for the next few years. And that's been true for maybe most of that person's career, but it doesn't change the fact that that is true very much so today. If you're an investor and an owner and you're on the wrong side of this and you're invested in something where if a sudden jump in rates or a crack up in the credit markets and and funding and liquidity markets goes against you, um, you know, this is just not the time to be taking those risks, I don't think. So um, I'm coming at it from how not to lose money rather than how to hit home runs. I think there will definitely be bag holders here when you see these kind of numbers. They just kind of jump off the page. So what do you guys think? Are there any implications here? Or is this all just just noise that I'm I'm worried about? I don't know if it's noise or not, but oh yeah, am I with you on this idea that you'd have to be crazy to want to buy duration in bond markets right now? Um and you know, I think for 10 years I've been waiting for companies to see some company that's like hey, I'm just going to issue the longest uh, term debt that I can and buy a ton of stock. And not to say that there aren't companies that are doing the issue debt and buy back stock. I'm talking about like, you know, go to four turns of EBITDA and just really go crazy with it. Um, When you have a stable business, that's not necessarily a big grower. Um, You know, maybe uh, some of the curate bulls would be like, hey, that's what we're doing. Um, That might be one example of it. But I could see the case for someone doing that. And, you know, maybe it's like, uh, I, I just refined my home mortgage, want to get that 30 years, lock in the rate. And I figure at some point I'm going to be getting paid. Well, although I said this in 2012 also, uh, I'll be getting paid more interest uh, on what I got in the bank than I'll be paying interest uh, on the mortgage. Um, so, yeah, you know, I'm, uh, I'm thinking in those terms as well. Um, I wonder why central banks haven't, uh, not central banks, why treasuries, like the US treasury in particular, hasn't tried to push out more of its maturities, issue 30-year and get upward. Like, you know, why not a 100-year bond from the US? If uh, Argentina could do it, why can't we? Um, Mexico did it. Yeah. Mexico issued a century bond. So I can't. Yeah, like, why wouldn't we be doing that? I don't yeah, know. I know. Yeah. Um, it seems like a no-brainer. Uh, so yeah, you know, those are, I, I do think they're the biggest investment angle would be if you have some good equity that, that 
truly is long, you know, uh, kind of a very enduring company uh, that could take some of that long-term debt and turn it into uh, cap structure arbitrage of sorts and just pay it down sometime down the line. Um, hey, but I've been waiting for that for a long time. So if it hasn't happened by now, then it's probably not going to happen. So yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah, I think um, John Malone, I think, uh, did do that. And, and that I guess that is curate. Um, but taking out long duration debt and, and buying back your stock or investing in in things that will go up with uh, inflation. I think that's that's a great trade. And I am surprised why we haven't seen more of that, but I think we will. I think going forward, we will see more of that. Um, totally with you guys on not taking duration risk in bonds, obviously. Um, and I think, Phil, to your question or point around why there haven't been so many bankruptcies and so forth, um, you know, I think, um, you, you know, you, you touched on that when you said there's so much liquidity. I mean, basically, we've had bailouts of everything. You know, the, the central banks, uh, specifically the Fed, is not uh, letting uh, defaults happen. So I, I, I don't think the question is really around uh, defaults as much as real returns are the problem. You know, you're going to get a nominal return um, a really low nominal return in the bond market, but you're not going to get a real return. Real return is going to be negative. Um, and, you know, the bond market is not a free market. So um, we've seen some stats, I think, around how much government debt is owned by the Fed uh, and in other countries by their central banks, especially in Europe. Um, and, you know, but even so, the Fed isn't admitting to money printing. They're just kind of saying, well, we're putting this on our balance sheet and we can um, reverse course and go the other way in the future. And I think, well, I don't believe that. To me, it is money printing. And Elliot, to your point on why don't we issue $100, 100-year debt, I think uh, that would just make it so, so much more obvious that this is money printing. This is not actual debt that's going to get paid back. Um, it might get paid back, but in, in dollars that are worth a ton less. So, you know, if you if you said, let's issue a 10,000-year uh, government bond and the Fed just puts it on its balance sheet, is that money printing? I think people would start seeing through what's, uh, what's actually going on. Um, you know, I think to actually justify zero to 1% interest rates on 10-year on government debt, um, we would need to be in an environment where kind of that deflationary scenario is coming to pass with technology innovation, putting that, pushing down prices of everything. And we'd need to have extremely benign commodities to even think about uh, kind of low single-digit interest rates. And we're having anything but an extremely benign environment in commodity prices. I mean, just look across the board. It's, become, it's getting more and more crazy. So, um, yeah, I don't, I'm really not focused on investing long in, in credit at all, uh, but rather looking for opportunities on the short side in I mean, if you if you look at uh, European long-dated government debt at zero uh, percent interest rate, I don't know how you can 
lose money there, but the timing really is an issue. It kind of goes to that George Soros comment on breaking the Bank of England when he said that that trade had been available for the better part of a decade. And it really only paid off at that one moment in time. And I'm trying to think about what is that moment in time going to be for the government bond market? And you know, I, have, I don't have an answer, uh, but I feel like when it's so obvious that inflation is not transitory, that inflation is staking off big, and when every company is trying to issue long-dated, cheap bonds just to put the money into something that's going to be inflation-protected, you know, that might be a sign that we're getting close to that, that point in time. So we'll just have to see. Yeah, that's what I think is so interesting. Because Elliot said, I've been expecting this for 10 years and it hasn't happened, which means it's probably never going to happen. And I think that's what's so easy to, to tell yourself. And uh, look, I, I have no clue as to when. I mean, he could be right in that it may not happen during my investable life. So that's for all intents and purposes, never. But I don't think that's the way to bet. I'll, I'll take a slightly different angle on the whole money print money printing and federal reserve thing which is that look I, d- I don't know how much this really matters to the average member of the public right i mean i think it, i don't think if you asked your average voter or consumer out there they would engage this debate or even understand the terms of it just because it's not a part of their life it's not that it's that complicated or they're so stupid it's just this isn't part of their day-to-day life so i don't know how much that affects them. I think what obviously affects them is the cost of living in in real terms every day. And that is a very real. So I I share your thought there that, you know, if if the cost of things that we all care about continues to go up, I mean, that's really the only thing that matters. But if it's just a matter of so-called manipulation from the Fed, I mean, the, the credit markets and in particular, the treasury markets are so liquid, like every fund manager on earth, it seems like is just yelling into the void that like this is all manipulated and not and, and nonsense. I was telling this guy the other day is like a very old school uh you know capital V value investor type and he was literally yelling and screaming and like stomping his feet and getting red in the face. He was so angry about this concept that inflation could be whatever number he was using, let's call it five percent, and we could have all of these yields so much below that. And I'm kind of like, yeah, but so what? Like, if if you're really that right, and all of the people who believe that are really so right, like, you could do something about that, right? You could express that opinion, and and that's what markets are all about, right? And I think that's that's kind of the point for me. And I I don't have that strong of an opinion as to which way the future is going to shake out, other than just avoiding, you know, some of the things that obviously make no sense to me. Again, like part of the beauty of this style of investing is you don't have to do anything if you can avoid the mistakes, right? And to me, the things that are obviously risky and and likely to become mistakes in the future are way more obvious than the things that are in a positive sense going to be, you know, home runs or something like that. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And I just want to caveat what I said about like it not happening yet, I think was more like, you know, rates have been low for a long time. I don't necessarily think they're going to stay low for a long time. So if you don't do it now, the clock's going to run out on your ability to do something like the lever. Oh, I, I see. Okay. I you know you. what I mean? So yeah, yeah. 
uh, yeah, I, I don't think regimes last forever, though. Yeah, like you like you preface the entire topic with everyone has thought this bond. Uh, but 40 years. Yeah. 40 years is a long time. Right. Like it's hard to find historically too many things that have been as much of a one way freight train. But the other side rates. of that is the really high rate period that persisted from the 70s through 80s. Sure in some ways looks more like the anomaly than does now. It does. No, I agree with you there, but you mostly worked that off over the next, call it 10 years, right? So even just our, you know, the last couple of decades have been a one-way freight train down. Like every tick up in yields has just been an excuse to get longer bonds, right? I mean, it's the ultimate buy the dip argument and credit. And so and you look demographically, I mean, this is where I think it just gets so fascinating is the combination of government spending and demographics and productivity and that intersection or that Venn diagram, so to speak, like what that means for the future is where your head can just start to explode. Like, how does this all end? Oh, boy, I really don't know. It's just uh, one foot in front of the other and try to get through another day and, and make the world a little better place. Is kind of like Well, the other side of that with- too is like, you know, we've talked about counterfactuals a lot. You can't prove a counterfactual, but it's like, yeah. Perhaps we were at, I, I don't know, I really felt like we were hitting escape velocity from the GFC right before COVID hit. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to think uh, what could have been, what would have been. But also at the same time, some of the events of COVID and how things transpired and how quickly society reorganized and how I think some of these changes are enduring. Um, we do have the opportunity to like build this new kind of normal and get back to trend growth in a way that's investment-led instead of consumption-led, because we do still have to reorchestrate a lot of things. And clearly, just look at what's happening with our supply chains, right? There's going to be a lot of investment. Right now, we'll focus on the lost revenue and you know whatever matters for earnings this quarter. But like, there's going to be a lot of investment to get this stuff right. And we've just gone through a couple decades without much investment of that kind, of the capital kind. I don't know. Maybe things get things could get different. Uh, things will be different. They could get interesting right. from here. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, to use a really extreme example, which I kind of alluded to a minute ago, if you look back at Evergrande, right? I mean, people have been screaming bloody murder about that for I don't know how many years, right? But a long time. And I, it's just hard to imagine how this could have ended any other way because the financial engineering was so aggressive and the fundamentals were so stark, but it it took a lot longer than anybody would think. I mean, back in my prior life, when I used to actually look at things on the short side, like I built this huge database and, and file folder, so to speak on China, because I would have thought that something like Evergrande would have come to have had like in 2012. (laughs) So as a short seller, you might as well have said that it never happened because you couldn't have stayed short this for the last nine years. It wouldn't have gone very well for you. So uh, is something like that going to persist in credit? It very well could. I'm not ruling it out at all. I just know that I'm not going to be the one to say like, you know, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to own 30 year treasuries or, you know, take a bunch of you know, low rated corporate credits to stretch for that juicy, juicy 300% return or 3% return on the high yield index or whatever. That's just, that's craziness to me. Yeah, I think uh, 
Phil, just a, a thought on kind of the 40-year or whatever it's been um, bull market in, in, in credit. No, I think there's a couple of things. One, Bernanke was probably right when he talked about the savings glut that um, was, was there. And, and to me, the way I kind of interpret that is you had um, global trade really take off in the last several decades. Um, you know, as Asia became hugely productive um, as, as a source of, of, of goods and so forth and created a lot of wealth, but didn't spend that wealth. And uh, so that's where there was just a lot of savings um, and that helped, um, you know, this bull market in bonds. Um, the other thing that I also would kind of mention for me is I feel like over the last four decades, politicians' willingness to do something that's unpopular or asking people to sacrifice or doing anything that would jeopardize their next uh, election has really gone down to zero. And, you know, both parties are, are guilty of this. I mean, the Republicans used to stand for, uh, you know, fiscal, sound fiscal posture. That's not even close um, to the case anymore. Can you remember um, George Bush Sr. Um, kind of have pushing through a, a tax cut that then yeah, that possibly the, 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 the read my lips yeah, yeah read my a, lips and then it came, lips, a, yeah. came a tax hike and it yeah. maybe cost him his re-election oh, who knows yeah. right um but nobody would do that anymore and so i feel like um you know what's happened on the political scene has has really um kind of gone hand in hand with with this bull market in credit where basically the fed has been coming to the red ever since greenspan also he had that irrational exuberance speech and kind of got hammered for that you know i think the market uh, was really jittery after that speech and he kind of learned his lesson after that and then he'd not say that ever again and was uh, basically a cheerleader for the market and all the fed um chairmen and i guess women have been uh the same or, or getting more and more dovish over time and so i think um you know that's all helped uh that that bull market in credit but where i come out on this is hey if this is if we can just keep doing this forever let's do it i mean that's like free money Let's just yeah. give free money to everybody. But somehow I feel like, you know, you can't just hand uh, a million or $10 million to everybody and think now the economy is just going to be super strong, and but there's not going to be any negative consequences. We should really think through what the negative consequences would be of, of such a move. And I think you just basically come to uh, inflation and then you got to think through what negative consequences that would have and who would suffer the most and how you might actually uh, profit from that. Yep. I wish I had better. I wish I had more answers. That's for sure. Well, we have a lot of questions, but I hope that our listeners uh, enjoyed the discussion. We'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, if anyone has comments, um, please uh, join our Twitter thread thread uh, when we post this uh, episode and uh, let us know which, what you think. Also, a reminder to send in your questions. Uh, if you have um, 
topics for future episodes. Uh, we definitely appreciate uh, your input. Thanks, Elliot and Phil, uh, for this week. Uh, great to speak with you guys. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.